Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. First off tonight, a bit of breaking news. Within the last hour, President Trump extended U.S. federal guidelines for the coronavirus outbreak to the end of April. The peak is expected for cases is expected to hit by mid-April and the president and his advisors hope that by extending the guidelines to April 30th, it will provide a much needed two-week cushion to really put the virus to bed. Let's hope that's the case because there really isn't a whole lot of time these days for other things and time is, if not already, running out for the U.S. vaping industry. Hit by a trifecta of crises, the teen vaping epidemic, vaping-related lung illness, and COVID-19, all this and the FDA's pre-market tobacco application deadline quietly lurks in the background, preparing to pounce and destroy vaping as we know it. Is this hyperbole? Well, that's what we're going to find out. And joining us today to help us do that is Greg Conley, President of the American Vaping Association. Greg, thanks for joining us again on RegWatch. Thanks for having me. It's uh, good to have an excuse to put on a suit for the first time in two plus weeks. That is true. That is true. Uh, tell us quickly about the American Vaping Association, what kinds of things the AVA does on behalf of the industry. Sure. So the American Vaping Association is a pro-vaping advocacy organization somewhere in between CASA and the trade groups like VTA and Safada. I myself have been doing advocacy in this world for it'll be 10 years this coming August. I was CASA's volunteer legislative director for around three years while I was getting my law degree, an MBA, and then working for a judge for a year. And then AVA was formed out of the sad reality that if you wanted to do full-time work on uh, vaping advocacy about six years ago, you had to form your own thing and, and make your own way. And AVA has now been going six plus years and we do tons of media. We do a lot of pressuring on different administrations. We were fortunate enough to be in the meeting with President Trump just a few months ago, even though it feels like it was just a couple of weeks ago. And so we're where there is a controversy over vaping, we try to be there. So how bad is it out there right now, considering COVID you know, has provided another opportunity for anti-vaping activists to really hammer vaping? So glasses half full, nearly every state legislature, many of which were scheduled to hear bills or had already started to hear bills that were very anti-vaping in nature and using the scare tactics from the fall about lung illnesses, the scare tactics about children using the products. A lot of those state legislatures are out of session now and may not meet the rest of the year. So while we're not out of uh, danger in every state by any means, you are having some of the worst states not meeting at the moment. So that's a positive. On the downside, you still have huge chunks of Americans, probably just as many as back in September, believing that vaping is just as dangerous as smoking. It's probably increased since then. You still have people believing that the youth epidemic is out of control. You now have people believing that the youth epidemic is leading to youth going to the hospital because of COVID-19. And you have the PMTA deadline and about a hundred other things. So depending on which glass you want to look at, uh, things are either uh, pretty bad or or very very bad. Yeah, and I, I, vapors aren't so good right now being glass half full people uh, because there's just been so much bad stuff. I'm, I, we're going to use this opportunity because we haven't had a chance to yet with some of our most recent guests, only because I have want to take mercy on them instead of you know, th firing all of these horrible bad headlines their way and then hold them to, like holding them to account. 
who just had Dr. Warner on, which was a fantastic interview. I highly recommend people go and find that on our site and watch it. He's, you know, is he's old guard in the right way of saying it, right? In terms of um, being measured, uh, a researcher and so forth. But that being said, I couldn't really get into much of the uh, of the of the real craziness. And so let's do that for a moment here. I want to get your thoughts on this, Greg, because our you know viewers they they get a chance to do this um, on Twitter, but they don't get a chance to see it happening like this. So let's just go through some of these headlines and just give me some fire off on this. Corona, coronavirus has closed vape shops but left cigarettes readily available. What do you think? So across the country, you have individual counties, cities, states making determinations about what is an essential business. And unfortunately, the reality is, is that, of course, gas stations, convenience stores, they're going to be left open because people go there for food, for coffee. Um, essential workers need to be able to go there. And those are the places where the typical American buys their cigarettes. But the vape shop where you have the largest number probably of Americans who have quit smoking and switched to vaping. They're not buying their products from Wawa or 7-Eleven or your local gas station. They are going into specialty vape shops. And so we've been, uh, CASA ourselves, many individual vapers, vape shop owners have been making the passionate argument to these county officials, to local mayors, that you need to provide an option for the existing vapors or else you're already hearing anecdotal reports of smokers or ex-smokers returning back to cigarettes. Some vapors are hardcore enough that there could be an apocalypse tomorrow and they're not going to return to smoking. But there are plenty of others out there who it's just better than spending seven bucks a day on cigarettes, but if they can't access the vape product that they're able to use cheap and easily, they'll buy a pack of Marlboros. So not a short take, but we need to do more. We've seen some individual governor, uh, mayors rather, like Mayor Glenn Jacobs in Knox County, Tennessee. He and his team declared vape shops to be essential. I think vape shops can, uh, especially when you're talking about returning customers, you can do that with, with proper social distancing. You can do it with curbside pickup only. Um, and so just saying, no, no one can come into the store. No one can even operate the store, even if it's just one person, that's ridiculous. So uh, in the U.S., so at the local level, are these actually wins that can be won and would sustain up the next, you know, uh, chain? Or could the governor come in and just say the whole the whole state can't have it? So every state is different. A lot of states are allowing the local governments to set their own rules while others are taking more of a top down approach like my own state of uh, New Jersey and New York. I'm sure the local governments are thinking about what exactly could we go further? But by and large, you're following the state directives. Uh, so it varies all across the country. Now, and are there, and this is probably one of those questions that, it, duh, are there states that are uh, less amenable to vaping during COVID than others? So you would expect the likes of New York, local California governments, California governments, by the way, and many others deeming have been deeming marijuana shops, both recreational and medicinal, to be essential, uh, as well as liquor stores. Hmm. It's too early in the game to, to have a real clear flowchart or spreadsheet of what cities and states have been receptive 
to different ideas on keeping vape shops open. I certainly would not be surprised to find that the states and city governments that are the most uh, hardcore about stopping vaping, that they're going to be the least amenable, the least amenable to common sense measures like allowing one single person to continue working at the vape shop and do curbside pickup. Yeah. I mean, certainly uh, the states that seem to be the most problematic when it came to flavor bans just, oh, moments ago, <laughs> do seem to be the ones that are not necessarily all that amenable to keeping the stores open for essential services. Yeah. And it's worth noting that Governor Whitmer in Michigan, who was the first state governor to try to, it turns out, illegally ban the sale of flavored vaping products through executive action, she went out there and made a baseless claim that I'm sure we're going to discuss more as we go on about COVID-19 being the reason why more young people are supposedly being hospitalized in the U.S. than in other parts of the world. I haven't heard Governor Cuomo take the opportunity to uh, weave in some slams on vaping in New York. Mayor de Blasio certainly has, sure. uh, but I'm not sure if Cuomo has uh, in New York. Yeah, he has, but nothing that was so drastic that it called for pulling out sound bites and, you know, and us getting pitchforks out. But he has. He just slipped a few things in uh, here and there. But yeah, you're right, though. It wasn't like a, to the to the extent that de Blasio had. You know, the Michigan's governor struck me uh, interesting because she was just quoted in the wall. Uh, I think today's Wall Street Journal. Um, they were kind of talking about how in which uh, the president's kind of, you know, throwing some weight around to try to get the governors to do what he wants, which you kind of do you want a leader or not a leader? I'm not carrying any. No, no talking about Trump. Stop it. <laughs> but anyhow, so let's jump back over to uh, uh, to some of the coverage here, because uh, that's entirely more interesting than um, talking about the president. Um, so NBC, uh, I've added some here since since the last, we did have a lot of stuff here on the essential services, which, you know, I think is a huge, a huge, huge thing. Mostly, and I'd like to, I wish that maybe, I wish that maybe the argument would be made more. I think the essential service piece is, you know, critical, you stick to it. But I think often the vaping industry and vapors miss an opportunity to provide some contextualization around the demand. What do I mean by that? Well, I think this this is about respect, right? This is really about respect. And so for the fact that you're an essential service, but so in fighting it on like a dignity issue, seems to me that you, there'd be some win there too as well. Stuff like that, I mean, Government is supposed to give dignity to people and, and instead of taking it away. And so when they don't deem these the shops essential services, they're essentially stripping dignity from vapors. And that strikes me as very anti-progressive. <laughs> like it's not in the mood of the times. Yeah, I certainly don't envy the local politicians and bureaucrats that are making the decision as to what is an essential service because you have very much competing dynamics. You want to absolutely flatten the curve, and that needs to be the top priority when you're looking at hospitals potentially not being able to handle an influx of patients. But at the same time, you also don't want to unnecessarily put people out of work, or in this case, risk sending people back to cigarettes. So I think the dignity argument, certainly, Kassa has been trying to energize consumers 
to contact their governor, contact local governments, talk about how important it is that vape shops remain open so that consumers can have access to open systems, flavored ones in particular. And dignity, absolutely, that should be something that consumers are bringing up to their leaders. Yeah, and that's hard. I would encourage our viewers to discuss it on Twitter and on Facebook on different strategies in which to be able to communicate to government that by closing the shops, by not deeming them as essential service, they somehow are damaging their dignity. Of course, from my political position, I don't know how to do that because I don't talk dignity, but they talk dignity and, and, and vapors should be utilizing it because this is a stripping dignity. So, and it's a really, it's a really important thing. So, all right. So that's enough of my, uh, my little philosophy there. Let's jump over to vaping. One of the best ways to trash your lungs. I can't even say it. This is NBC. Vaping, one of the best ways to trash your lungs and maybe die if you catch coronavirus. Yeah, the hack whose best job is that he is the chief medical correspondent for Morning Joe. I believe the third rated uh, morning show of the cable news channels. So it was no great surprise. When this started, I had some element, some level of hope that maybe this is such a serious, serious controversy, not even controversy, a serious public health threat that maybe we'll all be adults for a little while and not stoop to cheap politicizing of what is a real genuine public health threat. But it turns out uh, that's not the case. What you had was Professor Glantz, who just recently had a paper retracted by the journal against his wishes against uh, from the American Heart Association's journal. They retracted a paper he submitted because it was uh, utter trash. And Glantz is an expert at PR. So he pitched some journalists on, oh, vaping, look at my literature showing how bad this is for the lungs. And he generated some stories that led, I believe, to NIDA, uh, Dr. Nora Valkal, who is a prohibitionist, putting out a statement talking about how uh, vaping could uh, lead to worse outcomes for COVID-19 patients. And that was all you needed to set off a firestorm where journalists that are desperately looking for quick things to cover could do stories, could do them without contacting anyone for opposition, even though you have a, this is a genuine controversy in public health. There's no shortage of people that could have been contacted to comment on comment on these studies, not just talking about myself, but talking about the doctors out there. And I've talked to many others just in this past week that handle news requests, including some of the, uh, the large tobacco or independent vapor companies, and their PR people have the same reaction. Nobody is our phone broken. Nobody's calling us, but these awful stories are being written. So now it's reached the point where a real pushback needs to start. So how do you go about doing that? And you're right. What's happened here is just a complete total, you know, they don't call the other side. They put the phone down. It's a, it's a, it's a classic combination of source bias and authority bias. And, and the best health reporters are not covering vaping stories right now, by and large. Laurie uh, McGinley of the Washington Post Lena Sun of the Washington Post, both of whom did excellent stories during the vaping illness epidemic that turned out to be illicit THC products. They are concentrating, as they really should be right now, on COVID-19 stories. So you're left with 
the bottom of the barrel where you have health reporters like Bloomberg's reporter, who I like personally, but she is biased against e-cigarettes, not Angelica Levito, the co-author on her recent piece. And so they end up just running to the press without asking for comment from anyone, even though they have the phone numbers in their phone for multiple people that could have given rapid fire comment in response to a story like the one that suddenly came out on Friday with the FDA jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah, I don't think I've got that yet uh, uh, curated. Uh, what exactly was that? It was just a pretty ma matter of fact kind of a thing, but they, but they bandwagoned. So all of a sudden, uh, they put up a story Friday afternoon that Michael Felberbaum, a former AP reporter who never reported, uh, never really reported honestly on the controversies around vaping, and then lo and behold, ended up becoming the Center for Tobacco Products' press secretary. I don't know how that works. And Felberbaum got contacted by Bloomberg. Bloomberg writes a piece talking about how uh, the FDA now says uh, vaping tied to COVID-19. Well, later that was amended to suddenly say that if somebody has an underlying health condition and vaping has made it worse, then vaping could be a bad thing. Uh, but apparently Michelle Minton, who is at a think tank in D.C., mm -hmm. she- A uh, longtime friend, big friend of the show, so- Yes, she tweeted about how she'd contacted Michael Felberbaum and said, what the hell? And apparently Felberbaum didn't even know what he was talking about. So I think that caused Felberbaum to look back and see what the heck did Bloomberg write? And they sent a comment in uh, seemingly changing part of their uh, comment. What you're seeing on the screen now is the revised comment that was sent to Bloomberg. So let's have let's see if do you know when the change was made, uh, Greg? This was uh, late Friday night, as I recall. You see, they actually see their updated March 27th, 4.19 p.m. So you see the statement now just says, uh, anyone who has an underlying health issue, COVID-19 may be worse for them. Uh... Well, yeah, somebody that has an underlying health issue that vacuums twice a week is at risk because they have an underlying health issue, not because they vacuum twice a week. And so when uh, this when this originally came out, what was what was the actual statement? Do you think you it was e-cigarettes can damage lung cells, which is still in there, but it go actually goes against the FDA likes to uh, fall back on the National Academy of Sciences report from I believe 2016 or 2017. Well, the National Academy of Sciences report actually has a pretty good section on the impact, what evidence we have that shows an impact on lungs. And in humans, they say, we don't have the data to make that conclusion and that the animal studies and cell studies that we have, that is all these people are relying upon to say that this is somehow going to make your chances of getting COVID-19 or having a worse outcome from COVID-19. It's all based off of animal and cell studies that the National Academy of Sciences said, those aren't enough to make any sort of conclusion. So the FDA made a big mistake there. Uh, and hopefully Michael Felberbaum is asked, why did you jump ahead of this? Who improved, proved? I would love to know. Was it Mitch Zeller that approved of telling the news media, oh yeah, these cigarettes damage lungs? Yeah, damage lung cells. You're right, it was right there. Unbelievable. And I mean, Felberbaum has been around for quite some time. When we first started on the file, it, I, could, I think as far back as 2016, when the deeming rule dropped, I was on the phone with him with regards to that. So it's not like he hasn't been on this file for enough, enough length of time to know the ins and outs. You would hope, but 
who knows who within FDA CTP, if anyone approved that comment. Ultimately, he's supposed to be, and normally is just the mouthpiece. So you can't get too mad at Felberbaum for seemingly repeating what someone at FDA CTP told him to do. The mm -hmm. bad news is that with FDA, you could file a Freedom of Information Act request to try to figure out uh, how did this statement come about, and we won't have an answer on it till about 2023, by my experience. <laughs> and that might be optimistic. Uh, that's optimistic. Hmm. You sound you sound less than uh, you sound like you've got maybe some um, scar tissue built over from uh, FDA and CDC. Is that fair? I have a long list of people I don't like. No surprise <laughs> to anyone. All right. So, um, yeah. So the news media stuff has been crazy. So let me um, let me ask you this. The thing is, is that. Would you agree that some of the research and some of the reporting that's out there with regard to smoking uh, and COVID sounds reasonable? I mean, to me, in knowing what I know about the health, health hazards of smoking, it seems reasonable that if you are a current smoker uh, or recently current smoker, you might have some extra problems and complications around COVID. So that sounds reasonable. And that's a position that I was ready and willing and have said on Twitter well, yeah, of course, if you're a longtime smoker and you've already damaged your lungs, COVID-19 is going to hit you worse. But the data that Dr. Farsalinos has been continually updating, he's posted it on Twitter, it's on QUEIOS or something.com, an open source journal. Uh, so it has not yet been peer reviewed, but he's updating it as new data comes in. The data from China indicates that you're actually less likely to contract COVID-19 if you are a smoker. And the data is also not showing more serious hospitalizations coming about in smokers. Uh, can you trust how much of the Chinese data, even the ones put out by supposedly independent researchers, can you trust? We don't, as far as I know, have, and, and it's possible Farsalinos updated his paper and I haven't seen it yet. We don't have great data from Italy. Uh, part of the hypothesis on why Lombardi Italy has been so hard hit is the idea of, well, not only do they have an aging population, but you um, you had a high rate of smokers or people that smoked for many decades. We'll see if that turns out to be the case. But right now, you certainly don't have any data on vapors. Uh, that hasn't stopped people from making the connection. But the data on smoking, shockingly, um, is, is not showing that smoking is a serious threat of worsening COVID-19. We'll see how it goes when this is no longer seven studies, but it's 70 studies. Right, right. So for our viewers out there, the address, uh, the URL is Q. And let me see if I can half show it easier. I think I can. Look at that. There we go. Is QEIOS.com. I just uh, Googled Farsalinos COVID. Uh, yes. And that got us uh, right there. And that's smoking, vaping, and hospitalization for COVID-19. And oh, and Raymond uh, Nayura is also on there. It's the, he's the chairman of epidemiology at NYU School of Global Public Health. I don't know Anastasia. Where's where's it? Uh, she, I believe she is affiliated with um, Dr. Farsalinos's facility. Okay, got it, got it. Great. Well, that's uh, that's good to have that. And you know, Dr. Farsalinos is you know such a rock star to be right there for this kind of stuff. And I was really happy that uh, uh, with the success that uh, Dr. Pelosa had in Italy and some of the other countries in Europe, 
getting them to get the essential services uh, set, he really lit the fire on that in a good way. Yeah, in some countries, I think Italy was one where because they have a tobacconist union that controls the sale of all tobacco leaf containing products like Icos, their stores in Italy can't sell the actual heat sticks because they don't have a tobacconist license. So I think once Italy said that the tobacconists could open so people could go out and buy their cigarettes, it was going to be very difficult for them to say, oh, well, we're allowing people to go buy their cigarettes, but not their vaping products. In the US, it's a little different um, and other countries because you're not saying, none, no state no state nor local government has said that a tobacco shop is an essential business, but a vape shop is not. The problem is you have convenience stores, gas stations, et cetera, selling cigarettes, and they're being deemed essential because of the non-cigarette products they sell. Yeah, and it's a real tricky thing, isn't it? Now, we have uh, Cuomo in New York now looking to actually ban the sale of combustible cigarettes. What do you know about that? So that may actually be fake news. What? Apparently, I saw this article about a day and a half, two days ago, and it said that Governor Cuomo, they're going to be passing the budget in New York. Uh, the deadline is April 1st, so it's going to be very, very soon. And I'll talk about what bad news could be in that bill as well. But the article posited that Governor Cuomo was going to institute a six-week ban on the sale of combustible tobacco products in the budget. Well, his spokesperson, who certainly his job as the spokesperson to Governor Cuomo is often to lie in public, but he pointed out on Twitter, there is a certain website of very dubious, with a very dubious history of reporting that is claiming something that's going to cause a hysteria. And he essentially was, he denied the report without specifically referencing the report. Would I put it past Governor Cuomo to all of a sudden try to institute a ban on cigarette sales? No, but since it has to go through the legislature, you would think that if it was in talks right now, it would have leaked out by now through a reputable reporter. So in short, it does not appear that Governor Cuomo is going to uh, ban cigarettes for six weeks. But on the downside, the flavor ban, complete and total flavor ban for all vaping products, but not tobacco products, remains in flux for the budget. So those, those talks are going to conclude in the next 48 hours or so, and they're going to rush whatever gets put on the floor is going to pass in New York, period. And so the New York State Vapor Association, the Vapor Technology Association, they both have lobbyists in Albany that I'm sure are uh, calling every legislator they know trying to ensure that, that that doesn't get included in the bill. So, all right. So here's what we're going to do on, on, on this. I appreciate uh, that background in terms of what's with this story. So let me just first set this up. This is the Buffalo Chronicle that reported this and uh, reported it yesterday. Now, uh, I, I know this organization. I mean, they aren't, they aren't some crazy, they're an actual physical operation. I mean, they're an actual paper as far as I know. And, um, but they definitely report stuff that others don't. Um, so I don't know if they're to in the totality of this outlet, you know, they could be disregarded as the national Enquirer kind of thing or, or like, 
you know, that kind of thing. So I don't, I don't know. And there was not a reporter's name on this. So when I curated it, so that is, that's, yeah, that's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. However, what it, what the, what the quotes are, are quotes that are, don't sound like fake news. They sound like exactly what Cuomo and his people would say. And they sound, ex the, these quotes are such an intricate argument that they're making yes. that there's no way these quotes could be made by anybody that is not either public health on the outside wanting to do damage, I guess, or on the inside because it's for real. It's just way too intricate. And I need to bring it up because it is a, a fundamental weakness that vaping has going forward. And that is the precautionary principle when it comes to ventilators. So if, if you're a smoker or a vapor, they see them as the same, right? If you're a smoker or a vapor, you're independently making decisions that damage your lungs. And thus, because of that, you may end up needing a ventilator when the next virus comes because you know the next virus is coming. For sure, you can count on that. And we're going to do everything we did this time and more. And so if you're smoking, you're actually making a decision to, to hurt that 85-year-old that's going to need that ventilator in the next next go round, that's 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 definitely the the quote. Now we don't know if these are actual quotes. That's the thing. But the point is, they're worth reading because if it's fiction, it's damn good fiction. When a smoker contracts COVID nineteen, he or she will be far more likely to suffer respiratory system failure, thereby exacerbating New York's ventilator storage. Cuomo plans to say in remarks prepared for Monday. Fortunately, medical science informs us that ex-smokers experience significant recovery in lung function and oxygen absorption as soon as they quit smoking. A ban on cigarette sales for the duration of the outbreak will save thousands of lives and will reduce the state's shortage of ventilators, perhaps by several thousand during its peak, which is projected to hit the state. Sorry, I, I shouldn't have kept this on you. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. One second here. Hold on. Uh, there you go. Uh, this will save lives. Um, this will save lives and not just the lives of smokers. Uh, the governor apparently said, says every, every form of smoker that gets sick but does not need a ventilator means, means one more ventilator is available to keep our aging parents and grandparents alive. The governor's supporters argue that it is more important now than ever to address the public health cost of combustible cigarettes, not just to save the lives of smokers, but to save the lives of all New Yorkers by mitigating the severity of a ventilator shortage. That shortage is expected to impact high needs populations worst, including those with immune deficiencies, elderly. But so what we got here, there's no way that's fake. That has to have come out of, out of, out of the political machinery of New York. Yeah. It certainly sounds like language that was perhaps proposed to him. Maybe it's been talked about with legislative leaders, but all I know is that the tobacco lobbyist that I contacted this morning about the story pretty much was not freaking out about it by any means. And this is something that the person would be freaking about, freaking out about it if they believed it had credibility. Sure, we'll totally. See. Yeah, we'll um, see. There was a the same paper published a story in the last 24 hours saying that Cuomo was going to delay by six weeks his new e-cigarette policy. So mm. I don't know if Cuomo in the past month has announced a new policy or if they are referencing the flavor ban and saying that the flavor ban won't take effect for six weeks, even though 
I don't think that the flavor ban as written right now would go into effect immediately. It has a, as typical with state legislation, it has an effective date, 60, 90, however many days in the future. So I'm not sure. And we'll know soon because it is March 29th as we record this and the budget has to be passed either on or before April 1st. Right. So last thing on this then, just so my viewers totally understand this, I believe that somewhere down the road, months, maybe a little longer, maybe even not, the argument will be made that vaping has to be has to go on a precautionary principle, just like secondhand smoke. You're not allowed to smoke indoors because what you're doing is hurting other people. And it with the ventilator issue, I think they're going to be able to make a credible argument or at least mount one that says we have to get rid of vaping and smoking uh, to protect the population from the next virus. Yeah, and we'll see. There's going to be data from the U.S., from the U.K., from other countries that have a lot or a decent amount of vaping. You're going to see um, how many vapors actually do end up hospitalized. I think one thing that complicates this, I was just joking about this with someone from a company earlier today, the, the patients that are going into the hospital tonight with COVID complications, they may have caught it two weeks ago. Well, two weeks ago, um, you had a lot of people that made the choice, I'm going to stay indoors. I'm going to self-isolate. Who was left two weeks ago? Of course, we're not talking about the fast food workers, the medical people, the essential workers that go out and they risk contracting COVID-19 to do their jobs, and thank you to all of them. But who was, who? what type of people were out at bars, out on Bourbon Street, et cetera, two weeks ago? All are the spring they, break, yeah. Yeah, are they, especially the 20 and 30-year-olds that they are trying to present as having horrific, catastrophic consequences because of vaping, are those 22 to 30-year-olds more likely to have vaped in the last month versus those of us who saw what was happening and said, I'm not going to go out and get drunk in Philadelphia this weekend because it's irresponsible to do so. So you may end up having some bias in the early data just because the type of people that are willing to go out and party on a Saturday night when there's a virus out there uh, maybe more likely to vape in the prior month than those that made the choice to stay home. We'll see. Yeah, it's the millennials, apparently, that were the ones that were going to help save us all if they just stayed home and didn't go out and party. And then they forgot about the Generation Z or whatever the heck the 18 to 23-year-olds are um, and actually messaging to them. Mm, yes. Because us millennials, we're old now, some of us. And our, oh, so you're technically a millennial. I didn't know I that. I've got I've been in my house for 17 days. I need to study you, your <laughs> movements and how you think and stuff. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, I'm going a little stir crazy too. I mean, I'm like condo and then studio, broadcast, condo, studio. <laughs> I thankfully, when I got home from, uh, I was on a two week trip before finally getting home and going into isolation. And I had the foresight to go on Craigslist and find somebody that had a Peloton they wanted to sell. So I have my Peloton now, and I've actually been running outside for the first time in my life. So hopefully I'll be coming out of self-isolation uh, with a, uh, a better look. So let me ask you then, is this much ado about nothing? 
The COVID-19? No. The response, the response. <laughs> In my opinion, no, because the serious threat to our hospitals and the fact that I don't want a whole lot of old people and people with compromised immune systems to die. I wish there was a better way than what this country and this world has had to go through over the past couple of weeks. But you know, the economic argument, China shut down large swaths of their country and they're probably, they may have to do it again. Um, they've already been closing movie theaters just recently. Mm -hmm. um, and China is a type of country that they're not gonna shut down their country over much ado about nothing. They're no, not gonna do they're not sure. going to engage in a cover-up over much of much ado about nothing. Yeah. So certainly have there been people out there that have taken this as an advantage to play politics, to use it to uh, push up and promote whatever pet project, whatever pet solution that they want for the government? Yes, but this is a serious threat. And anyone out there who actually believes me to be credible, please take my warning and stay at home if you can. Sure, and fair Same. enough. Uh, well, and right now, if you don't, you're gonna get shamed to the point where they might actually burn you at the stake. I know, because I'm feeling the heat on my end too. Uh, there's some people with pitchforks coming and chasing me and they're all vapors. Because I've said, look, if you are a vapor, you have an experience that nobody else has right now. And that's the experience going through of 18 months watching these public health officials, FDA and CDC, telling you there's an epidemic of teen vaping and spinning up the entire mainstream media on the continent to cover it for 18 months incessantly. Jewel, 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 epidemic team, epidemic team, epidemic team. And then, boom, you get hit by uh, vaping-related lung illness. And if I got to explain to a vapor that that was less than truthful, then they either haven't been following what's been going on or they're just not got their marble straight. The fact of the matter is, is that CDC lied about vaping-related lung illness all the way until February 25th. That was just last month. No one month. needs to take the CDC seriously or, God forbid, the Surgeon General seriously. But you have people from real public health, not tobacco controllers masquerading as public health and using that to promote themselves and make themselves seem infallible. But real public health, the people that actually prevent disease, prevent death, they're the ones that I listen to and they're the ones taking this seriously enough that I do my best not to leave the house to do the right thing. Sure. Oh, of course. Well, and you don't have much choice, right? Because, I mean, martial law or, you know, shelter in place is a real thing, right? It's a real I thing. I could set up a speakeasy if I really wanted to. <laughs> I have enough people around me in this neighborhood. I could profit off this. Oh, man. Well, you're an American. You should be doing it. It's your duty to profit. And I, I actually sure. mean that as a compliment. It's one of the things I love about Americans. I think yes. you guys have all lost that. I think that, that, that part of you um, has been slowly chipped away. So you said that. So let's make sure I get that in a clean soundbite. So after E-Valley and the vaping-related lung illness, you should not necessarily take everything at face value coming from CDC. Is that a characterization of what you said? The CDC lacks credibility, just not them. I'll actually do it again for your clean soundbite. The CDC lacks credibility, not just because of their response on Ivali, but from a wide variety of issues, including how late to the game they were on reacting to COVID-19. One of the writers for Leafly, which did excellent coverage 
of Ivali back in September, October, November. He put out a tweet saying that we should not be at all surprised by the CDC's poor response because of what he saw when he was dealing with Ivali. You have a CDC that only values what their employees do, what their higher ups say. They don't take outside criticism. They don't take outside data. And that's what you saw with Ivali, where the CDC didn't take seriously what they were saying. You had the FDA that had to step up and actually put out their own guidance uh, superseding the CDC saying, stay away from illicit THC products. And still, even after that, it took the CDC several weeks to really focus in on what the actual problem was. So the CDC lacks credibility, as does Surgeon General Jerome Adams, perhaps the worst Surgeon General in US history. But real public health people, the ones that actually control and prevent epidemics, real epidemics, people should be listening to them. Okay. That's good. And I want to thank you actually for being straight up and frank on that. I, I, people need to hear that. Um, because as a reporter, as a journalist who just spent six months, you know, covering what the CDC was not properly and accurately uh, reporting and saying, I, I just found it extremely difficult to be able to just switch gears and just all of a sudden, well, the CDC says this and then just start marching along. And you know, uh, I think that um, vapors uh, should take some of their experience that they've had with their disbelief of science coming out of academia uh, and uh, the CDC and mainstream media and realize that, that 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 infrastructure of public health is exactly the same infrastructure of public health that's working right now on the COVID issue. So it's it's a life and death issue. But guess what? Smoking death is a life and death issue. And we've watched these people and these agencies seem to just absolutely irrationally um, uh, make decisions that, you know, put people's lives at risk. And so if you believe that's the case, then you have to take a strong look at COVID. Last point on this is that Public Health England, which is the public health agency everybody in our community uh, respects, I don't think it's just because they've taken the vaping, vapor side. I think there's real deep respect for British science, uh, for the way British, you know, people, you know, approach certain, you know, challenges. They've got more common sense, so forth, and this and that. And then plus they they've got research and stuff that's rock solid, and that you know is is proves that to the extent that can be proven that vaping saves lives. So that being the case, you know, I found it very disquieting to find out that on March 19th, Public Health England delisted COVID-19 from their list of high consequence infectious diseases. So this is the master uh, classification uh, for high consequences infectious diseases. On this list is hemorrhagic fever, Ebola, you know, uh, SARS, all the things. And they had COVID-19 on this list. But as of March 19th, they removed it. And their statement was, as of March 19th, 2020, COVID-19 is no longer considered to be a high-consequence infectious diseases, HCID in the UK. The Four Nations Public Health Group made an interim recommendation in January to classify COVID-19 as an HCID, this was based on consideration of the UK HCID criteria about the virus and the disease with information available during the early stages of the outbreak. 
Now that more is known about COVID-19, the public health bodies in the UK have reviewed the most up-to-date information about COVID-19 against the UK HCID criteria. They have determined that several features have now changed. In particular, more information is available about mortality rates, bracket, low overall, bracket, and there is now greater clinical awareness and a specific and sensitive laboratory test, the availability of which continues to increase. So the Advisory Committee on Dangerous Pathogens is also of the opinion that COVID-19 should no longer be classified as an HCID. So Public Health England and all of the public health agencies in the UK have said this isn't a high-consequence infectious disease. So, so COVID- I'm not... I'm not an infectious disease expert and I don't even play one on TV. Mm -hmm. But what I gleam from that is that they saw that the mortality rate was less than some had been expected. So they downgraded it. But that doesn't mean that when you have something that spreads so quickly and so easily, having a lower death rate, but having a much higher rate of infection, you still end up with a lot of needless death pain and suffering that doesn't really change what the picture is and what the estimates are on just how many people uh, could be infected and suffer serious damage. Absolutely. So yeah. We'll or, see on that. And yeah, yeah. Public Health England, I certainly do give them and believe that they do have a lot of credibility on the subject. So I'm much more willing to listen to them and try to understand their movements and their decisions than I am our CDC or our politicized Surgeon General. Yeah, exactly. And and our job at RegWatch is to make sure people are getting information, right? Because there's blind spots. We have them. Others have them. And if we're seeing through a blind spot, we're going to pull some of that out and show it. And so check it out. You can go to regulatorwatch.com, click on it. It'll take you straight to the Public Health England's page that's got that right there. And, and so forth. We've also got up the parliamentary uh, uh, testimony from Professor Neil Ferguson, who is behind the model that started all of this. And that's very interesting. You can find that on RegWatch too. So that's it for that. I just wanted to make sure we got that out from an information point of view. Um, so PMTA, the, the elephant in the room, what is going on there? So as of today, if you just look at what is on the statute and what the law is after a decision by a judge named Judge Grimm last year. All vapor products must have PMTAs, pre-market tobacco applications, filed with the agency and accepted for scientific review on May 12th, or else the product can no longer be sold in America. Already, we've had some of the major tobacco companies like Reynolds and JTI, Japan Tobacco, submit PMTAs for some of their vaping products. But now you have, uh, we've been working on that May 12th deadline since the days of the flavor ban and convincing President Trump to back off of that and only apply it to certain products. Mm -hmm. And we always figured that if we got any form of relief, it would end up coming late in the process. So we're now about uh, less than a month and a half away from that May 12th date. We just recently had news that because of COVID-19, Altria has asked for a two-month extension uh, to finish, finish their PMTAs because you not only have the problem of, well, Altria's CEO is down with the coronavirus right now, but scientists are unable to get in the lab and work together. Everything has to be done remotely. If you don't have some of the important scientific testing done, like harmful and potentially harmful constituents in vapor, 
a lot of those labs are not active. They're certainly not working at their full potential. And you've had companies receive phone calls from some of these independent testing labs saying, this is delayed now. We can't have multiple people in the lab uh, right now breathing all over each other to get your work done. So it seems likely that we're going to see some form of delay. What complicates things is that the Judge Grimm decision from last year, the Judge Grimm decision says at the end that the new PMTA date is May 12th. And if the FDA wishes to change a deadline, it must do so on a case-by-case basis. So Azeem Chowdhury of Keller and Heckman, he posted to Twitter just recently that they had their oral arguments in the appeal of that judge's case. And the appeal is based off of this idea that judges are there to say whether an agency acted right or wrong. They're not there to substitute their judgment for the FDA. So they're arguing, FDA as well is arguing, is that it was illegal for this judge to play regulator and set that May 12th date. So what the uh, the judge had, they had oral arguments, they had them virtually because of COVID-19. The judge has agreed to an expedited ruling. Um, so we'll see, I think it's in the Court of Appeals uh, for the whatever circuit Maryland is in. And if that judge rules that the FDA lacked authority, or rather Judge Grimm lacked authority to set that May 12th date, then you could have the FDA say point blank, okay, uh, no PMTAs until August, until September, until, until October. I'm sure VTA, if they haven't already, is extend is requesting uh, 12 months extension, if not um, something like that, I'm sure, eight to 12 months. Yeah, you would think that with the fact that this has been bounced around so much, I mean, you, there's a there's a huge legal argument that could be made that this whole process should be just nullified because of all of the changes and delays and, and misinformation and lack of information. And then at this point, I mean, how could you possibly, uh, you know, enforce this deadline uh, when people couldn't even get their applications properly in? It, it's an utter mess. And with or without COVID, what we're heading towards is if we don't get real reforms, what we are heading towards is likely not the FDA going in and shutting down vape shops. What you're going to end up happening, we already have a preview of this because there was a bill introduced in Missouri this year, and it was extremely well-written, not drafted by some staff or clearly drafted by a $800 an hour attorney from Altria or Reynolds most likely. And this bill lays out in explicit detail that after June 1st of this year, and again, this bill by all accounts is not passing in Missouri. So don't worry if you're in Missouri, but it's a preview of what's to come. Bill says after June 1st, any product that has not submitted a PMTA and had it accepted for filing by the FDA, that product, if it hasn't had a PMTA filed, it is banned in the state of Missouri. Mm. We have a similar structure in the flavor ban that will soon be moving to the desk of Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. It's a bill to raise the age to 21 for vapor products, which the industry endorsed, but then they slipped in a provision authored by either Altria or Reynolds saying that if uh, post, I believe January 1st of 2021, no flavored product can be sold unless a PMTA has been granted for it by the FDA. So that is what we are moving towards in the future, regardless of what happens on PMTAs. If we get a year delay, if we get actual reform, if we get 
a mini, um, a, a structured PMTA process where only one part needs to be in by July of this year, and then it's six months or a year for another part. There's all sorts of ideas floating around out there, but ultimately the tobacco companies now recognize that the path to getting rid of these products is not actually through FDA necessarily. It's using the FDA's authority to go to the states and say, well, FDA isn't acting as you wish. Well, you can actually use this to your advantage. That's unfortunate. So the idea being then is that they'll they'll take this requirement that's not yet put into force and say, well, if you don't have it yet, then you can't sell your product. But yes, it's not it's very confusing. It's right. very confusing to state legislators when you explain to them how, well, Secretary Azar is very focused on closed system products like Juul. And he wants those products to have their PMTAs in by May. But when he when, but for open systems, the date is still May 12th, but the FDA doesn't really care about them and has signaled that they're not going to be shutting down vape shops. Uh, uh. So having to explain to a 75-year-old legislator who doesn't know what the heck a jewel even is, that there's one class of products that the FDA is taking extremely seriously and products that are generally made by companies that can afford to comply with whatever the FDA lays out versus the side of the industry that has the uh, most uh, lurid flavors that people can hold up at a hearing, but that's the products, those are the products that aren't particularly a problem with youth. It's, it's a difficult subject to explain to people. And once, the big thing is that once the tobacco companies and maybe one or two independent vapor entities get PMTAs through for 20, 30, 40 products, if that actually happens, it will be very, it will be much more difficult to make the case to state legislators that, oh, we need 4,000 other products that aren't approved by the FDA or else people are gonna go back to smoking. That's the long-term difficulty facing this industry if we don't get real PMTA reform is the tobacco companies as well as any other big entity that files PMTA they're going to want to take advantage of that and they're going to recognize the states is is where you're going to get this work done. Gosh, that's an important point to make. Cuz at some point there'll be enough that'll be in the in the system or approved that you can't make the argument that people are being denied access. Yeah, not enough. Yeah, you can make that argument. It'll be an honest argument because you'll be be denied access to probably some excellent products that have no chance of hell of putting through a multi-million dollar application. But for people who don't vape, they're gonna look at 40 products on the shelf and say, you got 40 products, suck it up. So Dr. Ken Warner, um, Dean, uh, Emerist, Emerist, God, I don't know why I can't remember how to how to pronounce uh, pronounce that. Uh, so anyhow, he's, he's old school. Old school knows where the bodies are buried. That's just the best way to say it. He believes that there should be, and he sits on FDA's Tobacco Science Advisory and also in Canada too as well. And he said that he really believes that there should be some very simple kind of process in which that you can get approved if you use, you know, already pre-approved ingredients that got their PMTA. And then after that, you can mix away and then be subject, of course, to good manufacturing standards and emissions, you know, uh, testing on on the liquid spot testing, you know, not you don't have to, you know, go through a huge process. And this is a person who's been, you know, covering tobacco control with research for years, decades. Yes, uh, Dr. Warner is brilliant. One of my favorite people from the old guard of tobacco control and his questions uh, when they have the tobacco science advisory committee meetings. I believe he's on that committee. Um, always asks very good pointed 
questions that have a, a, a real uh, subjective point to them. And you have, he's not alone. I'm sure Dr. Abrams, Dr. Siegel, several others, Dr. Farsalinos, would love to have a streamlined PMTA process that empowers the FDA to say, okay, right now this product appears to be fine, but in the future, if we discover more information, if we discover that a particular flavor chemical uh, is harmful to lungs, well then the FDA would have the authority and, and still have the authority to pull a product from the market, force a reformulation, anything like that. Proper oversight would be good in this market, but not at the cost of 99% of products going away. That has been the fight that we've been fighting at the federal level for six plus years, and, and we're still here, fortunately. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, hanging on, it seems to be the case. And, you know, mentioning that, obviously, let's take a quick second to head over to support.regulatorwatch.com, support.regulatorwatch.com. That's our support microsite. And I know that, uh, well, with three or so million Americans filing for unemployment insurance, send some of that U.S. dollars my way from the federal government. I'd really appreciate that. That'd be good. And uh, keep in mind, of course, that we've got some great supporters that are, are sticking with us, but it's getting hard for everybody. Um, so please go to support.regulatorwatch.com, poke around, and uh, decide if you can part with a few of those dollars of yours and send them our way. We'd be most appreciated. And that leads me to a question for Greg. Greg, unfortunately, we're like, uh, well, we're news. So um, we make money when people are getting screwed right? Because that's what we cover. It's not like regulations are going great for vaping or anything like that. And we're just covering it incessantly for four years. Unfortunately, I mean, our job kind of depends on things going not right for the industries that we cover. Um, what's the outlook for vaping in the US? Keeping in mind that we're talking vibrant, lots of companies, maybe not exactly what it is now, but something similar. So I always have faith in America. It, look at the fact that six years ago, Mitch Zeller, even let's go back 10 years, 10 years ago, the FDA tried to ban vaping products by declaring them to be drugs. And a whole lot of the early vapors thought, oh, we're screwed. Well, fast forward to 2014 or so, Mitch Zeller goes to the OMB and presents a document to them, the first e-cig regulation that would have banned the sale of flavors within six weeks or so, unless a product got a PMTA. And here in 2020, we're still here. So I don't like, I can make grim predictions about some of the states uh, and how long vaping has um, in certain areas of the country to be around. But at the federal level, especially if President Donald Trump wins reelection in November, the vapor constituency, his election team and Donald Trump himself recognize that this is an issue that more people care about saving than they care about eliminating it. You can fit the vapor prohibitionist crowd inside a meeting room of a Ramada in most states because it's not a subject that people feel passionately about. Whereas with us, we held a big rally in D.C. that was very successful because people care about this issue. So I have faith that we're going to be OK, but I do not have a great deal of faith in the states, um, about 10 to 12 of them in particular, not taking negative actions if this market is not constrained um, to a ridiculous degree by the feds. So I, so it's still, uh, it's still a vote for Trump is a vote for vaping then? 
at this point, I, I came on your show about three years ago. We did it at the VTA or Safada conference, one of the two. And I said, if you're just strictly looking at this as a vapor voter, a vote for the orange guy, I believe I said. That's exactly what you said. <laughs> the smart choice strictly on vaping. And three years later, that prediction, that, that uh, recommendation stands true. Because yes, we did go through hell with the Trump administration, with President Trump taking very bad advice in September. But where are we now? We have a president who, according to the Washington Post, his first phone call from Azar, uh, when Azar wanted to update him on what was going on with COVID-19 in late January, early February, his first question was, so what are flavors coming back to the market? So that's a sign. President Trump actually does uh, recognize that this issue is important to many Americans. Um, you're not going to get that same level of attention with uh, with Joe Biden, in my mind. Uh, he asked, He got asked a question from a small business owner on vaping. And Joe Biden could have said, I want more information. Get me that guy's number and we'll discuss it so I can formulate a real viewpoint around it. Instead, he just went to, well, yeah, if the science just tell me to ban it, then, then screw it. I'll ban it. Well, and You're that's not what I that. and that's what's so maddening about that side of the team there of our of our of our humanity is that they throw the word science out like they somehow own it. And then, but they don't understand that it's all the corrupt science seems to be coming from that point of view. Yes. And so anyone that sees a statement from a politician that says, I'm going to follow the science, I'm going to do what the scientists and the regulators tell me to do. Well, the scientists and the regulators within the federal government always want to do more. You very, very rarely have a government scientist come in and say, we need to scale back these regulations. They're hurting the uh, they're hurt, actually hurting public health or they're hurting our what we're supposed to be doing. They always want to do more and they always want to defend the position of what their bosses are by and large. So a president who held a stakeholder meeting on vaping did not kill vape shops, uh, has asked his health secretary, when the heck are these flavors coming back on the market versus uh, Joe Biden, who very quickly went from, I'll look at the science to, yeah, if the science has banned it, I'll ban it. Well, hopefully there is uh, some hope for people out there, because I think you did leave everybody with uh, some hope, which is really good. Is there anything that everybody needs to know about what's next? I mean, is there is there something burning now? There is still going to be maybe this uh, event in D.C., or what do we know? So the rally in D.C. has been canceled or pending being rescheduled, which is, in my mind, the right choice to make. What you need to know right now is that CASA, C-A-S-A-A.org, they have some active campaigns. They have a campaign to send emails to your governor talking about how vaping should be, vape stores should be an essential business. They have call to actions in Cal uh, New York for the flavor ban. Act quickly because we're going to have news on that by April 1st. Uh, Florida for their backdoor flavor ban that Juul uh, tried to trick their consumers into supporting by not bothering to tell them, uh, hey, this email also supports a ban on flavors. Uh, Alaska, there's a tax bill. They don't have many COVID-19 cases, so it seems like the legislature is still meeting. There's a 75% wholesale tax uh, being considered in Alaska. So even though many state legislatures have tapped out for now, still happening. And if states are in bad budget situations in six months, in a year, because of COVID-19 affecting sales and income taxes, well, tobacco, vapor, those are going to be some of the first taxes they look at. So now's not the time. 
to get complacent. It's only going to, as I say, every single year, unfortunately, it's only going to get crazier and worse from here. Yeah, I agree. And just a last reminder for the viewer, and that is to remember dignity. Find some way in which to communicate to government that if your shops are not designated as an essential service, that that how, somehow, you know, strips your dignity. Um, again, I don't use that language, so I don't exactly know what kind of advice to offer. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Just hang tight for one second there, and I'm just going to close off. And that's it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com. And consider making a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. It's easy. Just dig into your wallet and find a few dollars and toss them our way. If it's cash, please cough. I'm a conservative. I can take it. I'm hearty. And you'll be happy you did it. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. For RegulatorWatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.